Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ. Our sermon text for this morning is our Gospel lesson, recorded for us in the Gospel of St. John, the fifth chapter, verses 19 through 30. To bring us back into that text, I'd like to read just verse 24 for you once again. Amen, amen, I tell you, anyone who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He is not going to come into judgment but has crossed over from death to life. Lord, these are your words, and therefore they are your truth. We ask that you'd increase our faith through them. Amen. Dear fellow redeemed, here at Peace we use a three-year cycle of readings known as the lectionary, and this Sunday has been designated as Last Judgment Sunday. How does that make you feel? Is it a happy thought to think of judgment, or is it maybe one that brings fear into our hearts and minds? And if fear, why so? Well, the comfort's often been given to someone who's about to go into the courtroom to stand before the judge. Well, if you've done nothing wrong, you have nothing to be afraid of. And that's precisely the problem, isn't it? We know our sin. We know the things that we have done wrong. We know the judgment that we deserve. And that's why it can make us so afraid to think about Judgment Day or the Last Judgment. But what if? What if you knew the outcome of your case? What if you knew how the judge would rule even before you stepped foot into that courtroom? Certainly it'd bring a sigh of relief. Certainly there would be no reason to be afraid. Today as we look closely at God's word before us, may that word encourage you. Don't fear the judgment. What reasons are there for us to maybe be afraid of the judgment? I think the first reason is that the judgment is real. As there are many people in our world today that try to comfort individuals in the face of death or in the face of dying by saying, well, death is just a natural process and when you're dead, you're dead. Nothing happens. There's no life after death. Then therefore, there's also no judgment. And they try to comfort people saying, well, death is not really a big deal. Everyone goes through it. There's nothing to be afraid of, nothing to fear. But our consciences tell us different than that, don't they? Our consciences tell us that there is a right and wrong. Our consciences tell us that there is justice in the universe. That those that do wrong will come under judgment. That their transgressions must be righted, must be punished. This is something that we know and believe in our hearts and in our consciences. In fact, it's not just something that we know, it's something that we want, that we desire. We don't want it to be that there is no judgment, there is no justice, that, that mass murderers and people who commit genocide and serial rapists, that there's no punishment for them. That they get off scot-free in death. That they die and that's the end. No punishment, no retribution for what they've done wrong. No, we want justice. We want judgment. We know it's true from even our consciences that justice shall be carried out, that there will be a final judgment for all. But even more than that, we know what the scriptures say. In fact, even in our very text for today, it tells us plainly, a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and will come out. Those who have done good will rise to live, but those who have practiced evil will rise to be condemned. It says plainly in Scripture, there will be a judgment and a judgment for all. 
that none can escape it, not even the dead, but all the dead shall be raised and shall stand on that final day before the judge. As many in our world know the importance of justice and judgment and desire it, yet they see the world in which we live and they see so many evildoers getting away with murder, so to speak. And they get away scot-free, never to suffer punishment for the things that they've done wrong, the ways in which they've hurt other people. In fact, this can even be used as evidence, quite often, by our world to say that there is no God. How can God exist? If God is God and God is good, how can God permit evil to continue to exist in this world? How can he allow so many innocent people to suffer at the hand of wicked men? No, certainly that in itself must be proof that God does not exist. Because either he's not good and just lets evil go unpunished, or he's not God, he's powerless to stop evil, powerless to bring it into judgment. What if that was the case? What if those individuals or those that desire God's justice had that justice today? What would it mean? And who would stand condemned before the almighty judge of the universe? Who would be left if all evil and all evildoers were taken out of this world, out of this life? The scriptures tell us plainly all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is no one who does good, no, not even one. A number of weeks ago I was uh, watching a sci-fi movie. It's kind of a favorite genre of mine movie that came out recently called Singularity. And in that movie, the main plotline or premise is that the human beings are really trying to advance robotics and advance artificial intelligence. And they're working on these machines because they want the artificial intelligence to solve the world's problems, to solve the problem of war and conflict and evil and poverty and suffering and so many other things that human beings deal with in this world. Well, they give the problem to the machines to figure out. And the machine comes up with the solution. The machine knows exactly what has to be done to right all these wrongs, to fix the problem, is to get rid of, eradicate human beings, the human race. And how true it is, isn't it? The evil that is perpetrated in this world is perpetrated by us. Even those that have the best intentions at times, how many evil deeds that we continue to commit. And if God was to bring his justice and to take away all evil from this life, from this world, who would stand? Who would be left in the judgment? In fact, our text for today even goes on to tell us how that judgment is going to take place. What's going to happen? It says in verse 29, those who have done good will rise to live, but those who have practiced evil will rise to be condemned. It tells us plainly of the judgment. As we think about ourselves standing there before the judge, how will he rule in our case? Which group are we a part of? Are we a part of the group that has done good and will rise to live, or are we rather part of that group that has practiced evil and will be condemned? There may be some good things we can point to in our lives, things that we have done to help others, to care for them, to show love, but isn't there a far longer list of evil that we have perpetrated, not just against people we don't know,
but against our own family members, against our own neighbors, friends, relatives, those nearest and dearest to us, we have harmed them, wronged them, sinned against them in so many ways. Not to mention the many times we've sinned against our God. So in which group will we be included? Where do we stand when it comes to the judgment? This really gets to the critical question in our text for today. Big question, well, how is this judgment going to go? And how can it be that the judgment is based on works? After all, doesn't God elsewhere in Scripture say that those that will not be condemned are those that have faith in His Son, Jesus Christ? So which is true? Is the judgment based on works or is the judgment based on faith in the Savior? Well, it's good for us to note that the same Jesus who speaks verse 29 in our text that says those who have done good will rise to live, but those who have practiced evil will rise to be condemned, speaks just verses prior in the very same monologue. In verse 24, he says, Amen, amen, I tell you, anyone who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He is not going to come into judgment, but has crossed over from death to life. He makes plain that those that are not going to be condemned are those that have faith in the Heavenly Father who has sent Him as our Savior from sin. Yes, it is true as the Scriptures declare that the only way we are spared the judgment is by faith in our Savior, Jesus Christ. So why then are works mentioned at all? A number of years ago when I was living down in Florida, I received a letter in the mail informing me that I had jury duty. And I tried to get out of it, tried to say, well, I'm a pastor, I have a lot of obligations. So. And after all, do you really want a pastor on the jury here? Well, I, I couldn't get out of it, so I showed up at the courthouse that day and did a lot of sitting around until finally the afternoon came and we were brought into the courtroom by the judge and we sat in that room with the long benches. And before they got to the process of selecting the jury, the judge went about explaining the role of the jury and what the jury must do. It was very intriguing. Before that day, I kind of thought, well, the, the jury, they're selected, yes, and all the evidence is presented to them, and they just kind of make their own decision on things. They decide if the person is guilty or innocent. The judge made very plain the jury's role. As he emphasized the law, and that evidence, too. He emphasized that the jury must know the law, what the law says, every word of it, that they cannot convict the person if they haven't disobeyed the law. It has to be written in the law, right? What the law actually says they have to be guilty of. Based on what? Well, based on the evidence. So both things have to be true. That law has to clearly say this thing is wrong, whatever they're convicted of. And also the evidence has to prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that they had committed what the law said was wrong. And then, of course, they would be condemned. It's how important the evidence is when it comes to court cases, isn't it? So also in the final judgment. As we know, those that will not be condemned are those that have faith in their Savior, Jesus Christ. But faith is not something that can be seen, is it? Something invisible, something that only God can see. And so what evidence then can be placed before all the masses of people there in the final judgment to show which ones have faith and which ones don't? Well, the works will be shown as evidence of faith. How? Why? 
Think of what Jesus says in John chapter 15. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. He makes plain that those that are connected to him, those that trust in him by faith, will naturally produce fruit. Good works of faith. That faith produces good works. Good works that will be shown as evidence of faith. And he says, apart from me you can do nothing. Those without faith will have no good works as evidence in that final judgment. But then we might wonder, well, have I really done good works that can be shown as evidence? You can think of all the bad things I've done, but what sort of evidence is there for me in my life? What sort of evidence will be presented for me of faith in my Savior, Jesus Christ? In Matthew chapter 25, Jesus also speaks of the judgment scene. And it's interesting there that when talking to the sheep, talking to those that trust in him by faith, those that are not condemned, he reveals their many works that they've done in faith. And he describes, too, that those individuals will be dumbfounded in the judgment. They will be shocked. When did we do these things, Lord? We don't even remember doing these good works of faith. And that they will be done. As natural fruit that flows from faith worked by the Holy Spirit in our own lives. The same shall be true for us in the final judgment. Many works will be mentioned. Works that God worked in us through faith in our Savior Jesus Christ that will be presented as evidence of saving faith in Christ. Saving faith through which we are not condemned. But how can the judge rule in this way? How can the judge not condemn those that are guilty? How can he allow us to go free though we have clearly violated his word, violated his law? Don't we have to be punished? The story is told of a judge who served as a justice for, for many years, decades in fact, and was known to be one that obeyed the strict letter of the law and upheld it, took her job very seriously. One day, an individual was brought to her in the courtroom as his case would be seen. She was in shock as she found out that it was her son. And she heard the list of charges brought up against him and then the evidence laid out and she could not believe that he was so careless with this law that she herself upheld and she herself, in fact, dedicated her life to upholding. But many in the courtroom that day wondered how this judge would rule. After all, it was her own son in front of her. How could she give him a harsh punishment? Perhaps she would go easy on him. Perhaps she would show mercy. Perhaps she would bend the rules just a little bit. After all, it was her own child. The judge weighed the case, she weighed the evidence, she weighed the law. She decided to give, ultimately, the verdict. He was guilty of all these things, and she also pronounced her judgment. It would be the severest fine possible for what he had done. The son was in shock. He knew he couldn't pay the price of the fine. He knew this would mean jail time for him. How could his mother do this to him? Didn't she love him? Well, at that point, 
the judge stepped out from behind her bench. She took off her judge's robe. She stood next to her son, took out her checkbook, and wrote the check for the exact amount, the high fine that was required of him that his transgressions, his violations of the law, deserved. It wasn't until that very moment that the son understood two things about his mother. That he understood, really, her reverence for the law. How it must be upheld. Justice must prevail. Punishment must be meted out for transgression. But also to understand his mother's love for him. That she herself would pay that high fine that would needed, be needed to be paid. This, of course, is a picture of our own judge, isn't it? Our own judge, Jesus Christ, who will judge us in the final day. The judge who has stepped out from behind that judge's seat. And he has become one of us. He has stood next to one of us as human beings in this world. And he has said, I will pay your fine. I will suffer the punishment that your sins deserve. Justice will be carried out, but I shall pay. And he has paid it, hasn't he? He's paid it through his perfect life and through his innocent death on the cross. And because punishment has paid, been paid for your sins and mine, we are free to go. As the scriptures testify, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And why? Because our fine has been paid. Paid in full in Christ. So we really don't have any reason to be afraid when it comes to judgment day, the last judgment we who know our Savior Jesus Christ know the outcome. We know that what Jesus, who is the judge himself, will say concerning us. That he will allow us to go free. That we shall not be condemned because the punishment has been paid in him. Yes, all who trust in him shall have everlasting life and shall not be condemned. Amen. Invite the congregation to please rise. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, forevermore. Amen.